Our second reading is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, and it is on page 794 if you have a church Bible. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Welcome, good to see you and welcome to a new series. Um, we, that we start today. Um, this spring, right the way through from Easter through to the summer uh, months, I want us to think about this huge topic. I'm kind of ambitious. Um, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? It's the title of a classic book by a super author called uh, J.I. Packer. It's an absolute classic. If you've never read it, can I encourage you to get yourself a copy? Um, I am going to borrow from it generously uh, in the weeks to come. But about uh, 70 years ago, I don't think, honestly, you'd have to do a series like the series that we're beginning on today. Up to 60 years ago in uh, uh, post-UK Britain, I think there is a a problem with the Judeo-Christian idea of who God is. People in the modern world, especially in the Western world, no longer grow up in a Christian context. It's widely recognized that we're in generation X or Y or Z or one of those. We're in the I-gen, the I-generation, a generation of young people, some of who have prayed very helpfully and read the Bible so clearly this morning already. You are part of the generation that are growing up, Josh in the front row and others on the back row. You're the generation that have grown up and all you can remember, well, you can't remember a time when there was not such a gadget as an iPhone. But there was such a time, believe it or not, we used to be tethered to the wall. There was a time even before a mobile phone, heaven forbid. But more importantly, I want us to look at this topic of knowing God because we're growing up in a generation in post-war Britain that no longer knows the idea of the Judeo-Christian, the God of the Bible. So I want to spend some time in the next few months to look at the character of God, his His knowability, that's this morning, the fact that God is a God who's revealed himself in holiness, in righteousness, in wisdom, in love, in grace, in sovereign control, in kindness, compassion, these huge topics that reveal to us the character and the attributes of the God of the Bible. That's what we're going to do. And if it wasn't for this topic this morning from Jeremiah 31, we wouldn't even be able to get a handle on those other topics, those other characteristics that I've mentioned. God is knowable. He's made himself known. He's revealed himself in the most profound and meaningful and clear way. And this morning, Jeremiah 31 is is the classic text in the whole Bible that Christians believe that God is knowable. But why is that such a big deal? Why is that important? That's what I want to look at first from, from Jeremiah 31. Please have it on your lap. Jeremiah was writing at a time in 7th century BC, before Jesus walked the earth and had sand beneath his toes and dirt under his feet, Jeremiah wrote to the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and he's writing with these two themes that we can see in our passage. We're going to refer to an earlier part of the chapter, which is why I need your Bible on your lap or on your iPhone, whichever means you've got it. These two great themes of the justice of God 
so that God handed over his people, he delivered them into the hands of the Babylonian Empire, this huge superpower, like the huge America or the huge ex-Soviet Union. God delivered his people into the hands of the Babylonian army because they had forgotten him. They were living in a way that was counter his commands, counter his character. And so God dealt with his people by handing them over, and they were certainly a long way from home, and they needed rescuing. God's city had been sacked and God's people were taken captive. And if you look in verse 10 and sentence 11 of Jeremiah 31, you read these words. He who scattered Israel will gather them. He will bring them back. God's going to do something and he needs to do something to rescue his people. Verse 11, for the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Just in that one sentence or two, God is uh, describing through the quill of Jeremiah the condition that God's people are in. They need rescuing. They're, in the, they're far from home. They're living in a distant land. And it looks like God's promises are in absolute tatters. And unless God does something to redeem and rescue his people, there they will remain forever. And that's what they deserve because of their attitude towards him. But look at the journey home, verse 31 to 34 that we had read. God is going to take initiative. God is going to do something to forge, like a goldsmith, forge a new relationship in the most powerful and profound way so that God will deal with his people in a new way and an unbreakable way. It's called the new covenant. It's a word that describes relationship in a profound way. God is going to do something new and radical and real and lasting and God-centered so that it's going to be unbreakable. And because of what God will do in this new covenant pointing forward, tears will pass away and a covenant will be real. It will be husband-like to his people. Notice that in sentence 32. I was a husband to my people. I brought them out of Egypt and I became their husband. God loves his people in an intimate marriage-like way. Marriage is a wonderful picture. It should be a wonderful picture of the wonderful character and covenant nature of God with his people. But because God's people turn their back on him, God will make a new covenant, a new relationship will be possible with him. But he will do all the running himself. He will make all the promise-keeping initiative himself. And it's a foreshadowing of the cross. Now, covenant is a, a deep personal relationship with legally binding language. And that wasn't the way God always revealed himself to his people. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself with uh, theophanies. And that's a funny word, teenagers. Theophany means an Avenger-like, Marvel-esque, DC Comic-esque, supernatural event where God reveals himself to his people in a localized, special way. So God and Moses... God came and he arrived on the scene to Moses and uh, the burning bush. Moses had to take his sandals off, not because they were smelly, but because he was standing on holy ground. And he was looking at the real covenant God in a special localized way. God revealed himself to Abraham in a special localized way. Look at the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. I'm going to make a promise to you. God spoke to Moses up on Mount Sinai in a unique way. And God met with his people in tabernacle when they were portably, you know, moving around, camping, and God was at the center of his people, he was there in a lasting way. But occasionally, when God met with his people in the temple, if you want to meet with me, God would say, in the old covenant, it was in a special, localized way. You had to go somewhere 
to meet with God and then God would move on. But that covenant broke down. God's people turned away from him. And so now he says, verse 31, a time is coming in which I'm going to produce, I'm going to make, I'm going to form, I'm going to forge a new covenant. And God's going to make it between himself. God the Father and God the Son are going to do something radical in the power of the Holy Spirit to form a new, unbreakable, lasting, permanent covenant. But where does he dwell? The moving has stopped around. No longer tabernacle is needed. No longer temple is needed. In John 1, that we read at Christmas, it says this, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. You don't need to go to a church to meet with God. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to meet with God. You can meet with God anywhere by his spirit as he opens up his word, as he speaks to you. You can hear his voice. Hopefully that is at a local church as well. But because of Jesus, God is saying there is a new way of operating. No longer is a portable tent or a priest, a human priest needed. There is one priest and his name is Jesus Christ. This new covenant, newer, deeper, fuller, richer, bolder, permanent. It's a revolutionary way of relating to the God of the Bible. That's why it's so important. And what will happen, verse 34 Now that this has happened, they will all know me. From the least of them, from the littlest, from the lowest, to the greatest. Now this is a radical, if a subtle, teaching point from the Bible. What does this mean? A Christian is someone who knows God in a deeply personal way. A Christian is not someone who knows about God. You can be a non-Christian and know that. You can be someone with a great intellect and a great mind. You can be at a university city. You can be teaching theology, the study of God, and not know God personally. You just know about him. But here in Jeremiah, there is a claim that God will do something new, and it's centered on the gospel of Jesus, so that everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, from the poorest to the richest, no matter what your color skin, no matter what your postcode, no matter where you live, you can know God in a profound and a real and a lasting way. Not only that, you can't even conceive that a relationship with God is possible unless God is already working in your heart. We have a budding Paul Hollywood in our home. He's not Liverpudlian, he hasn't got expensive cars, but he loves making food. I won't tell you who that is, but... uh, He loves just getting his hands dirty, chopping up rhubarb. There was the job yesterday. Making a topping was given to one of his sisters. Our kids love cooking. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of God and starts to knead it, not into dough, but into our hearts. And until that happens, we cannot even conceive that there is a relationship with God that is possible through his son. If you're not yet a Christian, you may think, Christians, golly, if you really think you can have a relationship with God, if you can know God, you'll have one of two reactions if you're not yet a Christian. You'll think that's arrogant or that's really, really frightening. If you think it's arrogant, first of all, let me remind you of the gospel, the good news. It's not an arrogant thing. We're not saying that our minds have increased, our heads have got so big, we are so great, we're so much better than people who aren't yet Christians, so that we can get a a grasp on God. We're not saying that at all. We're saying that God has revealed himself to us. It's not about us, it's about him. 
God comes to the humble and the lowly in mind, not to the arrogant and to the proud. And if you think it's frightening because you've heard something of the God of the Bible being great and awesome and mighty, someone you can't come before like Moses, you're absolutely right. Christians don't come before God with their own record or merit, their enoughness, their strength. We're not confident in ourselves. We're absolutely confident in a person called Jesus who's at the center of Easter. We come before a holy God, someone who's different from us, someone who's purer than us, because of his record. If you think that's really intimidating, actually, I'm, I'm too bad. You may be okay. You look respectable. You're a member of the National Trust. You shop at Waitrose occasionally in Audi because they do good, cheap food. Yeah, okay, I might look respectable, but in my heart, I'm rotten to the core. But Jesus has rescued me. No one is too bad for God. No one is too far beyond his reach. The gospel that we celebrated at Easter in a nutshell is this, friends. We don't come to God because we are arrogant or better. We should be frightened when we come before him, but here's the good news of the gospel. Let me remind you of it. Jesus Christ came as our substitute. He came to rescue us just like he was promising the people of Judah 700 years before he came to earth. He is our mediator. He is our go-between between a holy God and an impure person like me and you. On the cross, we celebrated he died for the sins of the world. He took our penalty upon himself. He died in our place. He died for our sake. But that wasn't the end. We can celebrate a death as strange as that seems if you're not yet a Christian. But we also celebrate a risen life as God raised his son from the grave. He lived the life we should have led and he died in our place. It's a rescue mission. It's a redemption mission. It's the greatest story ever told. We don't come to God because we're better. We come to God because we know we're worse, but that Jesus has reached out and rescued us. But the truth is, whether you believe that or not, we spend our lives trying to prove ourselves to other people, to prove our enoughness, to prove our righteousness. We can do it through parenting. We're the best parents around. We can do it through work and our career. We can do it through raising a pot of cash and moving to the right neighborhood. We're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves that we're better than other people. To fill the void in our hearts. In the 90s, there was a song that was written by a band Extreme. There's a hole in our heart and it can only be filled by you. It's a heavy metal rock group and they're writing a song about God. There's nothing we can do to plug that void, to turn, get the engine started, because we're made for a relationship with God. And this passage promises, they will all know me, from the least of them, from the lowest socially, to the greatest. It's a critical watershed issue that Christians say. We can know God, and it's really, really important. There's nothing more important, friends, than knowing God. God, not knowing about him, knowing him personally. Okay, so what does that look like? What does it mean to know God? We're in point two. Just click a few forward. What, what does it look like to know God? There's a couple of elements to this. We're just going to go through them in turn. Knowing God, Christians claim to have a personal relationship with God. And just like any normal relationship, that means that there's a content. If you know someone, it's a mutual sharing of truth and of love. If you know someone, you mutually share truth, knowledge, and also love. Look at sentence 33. 
I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their heart. God is going to do something with his people in this new living relationship so that there's information, there's communication, and it's truth. God's word is going to be written on the heart of his people. There's no relationship without communication. I chatted to a friend recently. He said, yeah, our communication's been pretty snippy towards the end of term, husband and wife and kids as well. We need a break, and we got away, and it was a good time. You know what it's like, whether it's a relationship between a, an adult son and daughter to a parent or a husband and a wife or a friend and a friend or a teenage son or daughter, if they ever grunt or talk, to their parents. You know what it's like. Communication is vital. Jesus says, I'm going to put, God says, I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it on their hearts. To know God, there has to be an element of truth. It's founded on the truth. But look secondly at 33 again. Here's the second aspect. A relationship with God is a mutual sharing of truth, but it's also love. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You have to be in a very close relationship with someone to say, they're mine. I know them. I don't just know about them. They're mine. That's my son. That's my daughter. They're my parents. You can only say that to a very few people. But here is the God of the Bible who's inviting his people into deep, personal, lasting intimacy of relationship. They're my people. They're going to know my word in their hearts. Let's look at these four things. Four elements to this relationship with God. If you know God as a Christian, four elements to this. Knowing God, knowing God means you listen to him. Knowing God means you listen to him. When I was younger... You may find this hard to believe. I was quite a go-getter. I was a stamp collector. I was a philatelist, a stamp collector. I knew my penny black from a penny brown. I really knew how to have a good time. I was about 8 or 13 at the time. I stopped. I gave up when I was 18. It was too embarrassed. But I was a stamp collector. I, I like cars as well. I've got a few Haynes manuals to my credit, so I, I'm interested in how they work. I like tools and gadgets. I can know about objects, and it's just a body of information. Some people like computers, some people like sports, some people like music. You study something, it becomes your thing. It's a, a different relationship, however, when a person's involved. When you want to get to know a person well, perhaps you're courting or dating, when you want to get to know a person, you have to take the risk of opening up increasingly. You trust someone, and you open yourself up more and more profoundly, more and more deeply. You stop walking past a person when you say, are you okay? And you, yet you don't want to break your stride. <laughs> if you want to know someone, you've got to open up. You've got to listen. Communication is absolutely key. And that takes time. Here, God is saying, you can know me at a personal, deep, real, lasting way. But knowing a person is hard. It's hard work, it takes time, it takes effort and energy. And the more uh, well-off, the more important, the more um, status a person has, often it's harder to get to know them. Their time is more precious. They may be more protected. They may be more cautious about who comes into their sphere of influence. And unless they make themselves known to you, you'll never know them. You'll never get to know someone famous unless they come close to you and choose to open themselves up to you emotionally. Choose to take that risk because you're trustworthy. 
we would never know the God of the Bible unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. That's what Christmas is all about. The great revelation of God's character and nature in the baby of Jesus who grows into the man Jesus. The only way you can know God is if you listen to him. This is not a, a sermon on the Bible, but the way that God does that in the most profound way from this passage is through the Bible. So this morning, I got a ping on my phone, and I get it every Sunday, and it's annoying, and I can't turn it off yet, but it says screen time. This week, you've had one hour, 22 minutes on screen time every day. That's down 22% on last week. I don't know, perhaps I was looking for something on eBay last week. Friends, if it takes time and energy to search and scroll, and relationships take time and effort to foster, and God has revealed himself most profoundly in his son and through his word, what would your Bible ping be like for the week that's just gone? I spoke to a teenager recently. They're up at university. They've had their first year. And I said, what's God teaching you as a Christian man? What's God teaching you about yourself through your first term at university? He says, I've got no self-control. Really? Why? I spend 10 hours a day on my phone. I said, wow. Do you do any work? How study? <laughs> Friends, what would your Bible ping be like? Now the danger is immediately we go and say, oh, I need to be reading my Bible 10 hours a day. Well, that would be a good thing. But do you get the point? If you want to know God, Christian friend, you need to listen to him. How much time in the last week have you spent listening to him? How much time have you spent wanting to hear what he says to you through the Bible? Is that a priority in your life? Is that a priority in your morning or lunchtime or evening, however you do it? Would that be seen as a priority as your Bible uh, screen time, so to speak, pinged in the week to come? How will you uh, ever get to know God better unless you want to invest significant, good time? Not your fag end of time, your best time, your best energies, because you want to get to know God better. How would you do that? Someone I read about this week, uh, their reading of the Bible was revolutionized when they started to ask the question, why has God put this passage in front of me today? What do you want me to understand about you today? It should have completely changed how they read the Bible. They stopped reading just for facts and information, and they realized it was a love letter. God began to spoke to him in the most profound and deep way. How would your Bible ping be? How would you do that? Take time and listen to God's voice through his word. Here's the second thing. It also means to recognize that you know that you're being listened to. We thought about this in the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew, when God repeatedly is revealed as the Father, when your Father, pray to your Father who's in secret. When you pray, those challenging words from Matthew chapter 6, a Christian is someone who knows God, who listens to him, but also who knows that when he prays, he's being listened to. Sometimes one of our children would say, you're not listening to me. I really need this. I really need that. And it's not the case that we're not listening at all. We're just choosing not to buy them that thing. We're listening to them, but we're saying, you don't need that. You just want that. And I'm just the same. Sometimes you think God is not listening to you when you don't get what you think you know is best. But can I remind you that God is a God who hears 
You can pray specifically. You can pray confidently to your Father who cares for you. He will not, this is so true, he will not give you always what you want. He always gives you what you need. And one day we'll see that, that everything he does is right. But our God is a God who hears. And therefore, just like we listen to God through the Bible to build a relationship with him, do we invest time in getting to know God through listening to him? So after we've read the Bible, do we invest time praying, not just giving the shopping list, but listening to God, listening for him to speak to us, praying, desiring that he would speak to us and understand and meditate on what the Bible has said to us. But here's the catch. Very often if you pray that you want to get to know God better, it is through storms, it's through valleys, it's not through mountain peaks. It's through suffering and tears that you get to know God in the most profound and lasting way. But knowing God is what we're made for. Knowing God is what we actually long for. Knowing God means you've got to listen to him if you want to get to know him better. Are we doing that? Am I doing that? It's very easy for me to just to professionalize what it means to know God. Pray that I wouldn't do that. Pray that I would read the Bible because I want to get to know him better. I want to know more of him and I want to listen to him. Thirdly, it means also you have to receive his love. If you're not yet a Christian, this is for you. Knowing God means you have to receive his love. Look at sentence 34. They will know me because I have forgiven their sins. They will know me because I've forgiven their sins. Notice the order. Every other religion says, be good, and then God will love you. Do this, go to that place, give that amount of money, and then God will love you. But notice the order from sentence 34 of Jeremiah 31. They will know me because I have forgiven them. What comes first? It's God's initiative. God makes all the running. He pays all the debt. And God says, I give you my son. That's what Easter's about. I give you my grace. And you can love me because I first loved you. Completely different from every other religion in the world. Now, how do you do that? How do you receive the love of God? You contemplate it. You think about it. You meditate upon it. It's time. It's energy. It's jolly hard work. It's effort. But here's a key thing for me. How do you receive his love? Often I've found the most helpful point of a fresh understanding of the love of God is through repentance, through saying sorry to God for a misunderstanding that I've got of the gospel. Here's an example. Sometimes, most days, there's a different aspect of the gospel that I choose to deny by my actions. Why do I get so worried? Why do I get to, or find criticism hard to take sometimes? Because actually I become defensive in a very real and practical way because I'm doubting that God loves me. I've forgotten my security in the gospel that God has given me in Christ. And I feel threatened and I deny the gospel. And so at that moment, there's an opportunity for me to receive his love afresh by understanding the gospel in a deeper way. And if I do that, if I repent, if I recognize what I'm doing, then my heart doesn't get harder, it gets just a little bit softer every time as I understand the gospel in a deeper way. Friends, what would, you look, what would your life look like, Christian friend, if you knew that God loved you? How would you act differently if you could taste it and sense it afresh?
look at your whole life, look at different aspects of the week that's passed. Think of where you've perhaps denied the fact that God loves you and his love is demonstrated on the cross of Jesus. And repent, say sorry, please forgive me, help me understand the gospel afresh. One of my favorite uh, writers and preachers is a man called John Owen, long dead. He said this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, on God, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. The greatest unkindness you can lay on the Father, on God, is to not believe that he loves you. He does. Think about Easter. You've got to receive his love. Lastly, knowing God means that you express love. You express love. Every relationship works in this way. You say to someone how much they mean to you. You say to someone how much you love them. That can be through gifts. It can be through words. It can be doing things for them. There's different love languages. Just ask, I think it was Gary Chapman in a book about 20 years ago. The five love languages it sold millions. There's more than five. But that was five was, was fair enough. Friends, all our relationships work on love. We have different love languages, don't we? I can know that you love me because you do things for me. If you love me, let's flip it round. If you love me, you would do this for me. Here's how I love you. Here's what I love about you. Here's what I've noticed about you. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, every day you need to give time to saying to God how much you love him. He does not need that. But it shows that you've received his love. It shows that your heart is new. Do you do that? Do you spend time devotionally thanking God for simply for who he is, for adoring him, treasuring him, savoring him? Or are all those words kind of foreign to you? But it's not just expressing uh, love with words. It's also actions. It's obedience. Think of uh, someone who was employed in a job. Say they're a gardener. And, and their boss is a lady, and, and the guy's working hard, landscaping and whatnot. And uh, the lady who manages the company, every time um, she thinks it's right, she puts a new um, summary of the tasks that need to be done, a new direction, a new uh, path, a new plan, uh, vision statements, all that stuff. And, and the workforce are just kind of getting ground down further and further. Here's another new initiative. Here's another new aim. Here's another new goal. But over time, this worker, this gardener, falls in love with the boss. And they get together and they get married. Think how the relationship, the new relationship the worker has with the boss would change so that when these vision statements come out, the grumbling would stop. At least it would lessen. Would not the new relationship change the motivation completely? Wouldn't the gardener want to do things just because he loves her? Verse 33 says that God will write his word, the law, on our hearts. It strikes me as uh, sometimes, especially younger Christians, can have this relationship with the law of God. Um, I'm not going to sleep with that girl. I'm not going to sleep with that boy. I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not going to have that drug. I'm not going to go to that simply because I want to get into heaven. Now, that's just law keeping. When a young person or when a more mature person becomes a Christian, God writes his word on our hearts. And keeping his word is not a drag. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's a delight. Why? Because we love him. We love our boss. We love our God. 
and we want to do what pleases him. Not to earn merit. We've already received his grace. But because the law is written on our heart. Another great reader, or great friend of mine, uh, in books is Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, in one of his letters, he wrote this in his journal. Tonight, I was communing with God. I was praying, I was reading. I was communing with God, and God put my head on his shoulder, and he bid me worry no more. It's kind of archaic language, but do you get the point? Here's a man that knows God so deeply, so closely, so intimately, spends so, time, so much time with him. It's a real investment of relationship. And he says, God drew me close to him. And it was as if I was laying my head upon his shoulders so I didn't have to worry anymore. If that is a very, very rare experience for you, friends, it's as if you are millionaires spiritually, but you very, very rarely go to the bank to withdraw. Start drawing on the capital that we have in Jesus. Start drawing on the treasures that there are in God and in Christ. And here's the disciplines of how to do it. You don't just read the Bible. You don't just pray. You pray because you want to get to know God better. You open the Bible because you want to be captivated more by his person and his works. You're confident that when you pray, he doesn't ignore you. He knows what you need and he hears you. And you've received his love and you want to receive it more and more. And you want to show his love to others. And you want to show your love to God by obeying his word. The law is written on our hearts. Do you see the difference? I'm not knowing, do you know? I'm not asking, do you know about God? I'm asking, is he yours? Do you know him personally? Are you his? And has his word been written on your heart? Let's pray.